News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Chrissy Greer and Alex Lynn. We're joined on the phone Thursday by a New York Times editorial board member, Mara Gay, and researcher, Emma Goldberg, who last week produced one of the best pieces of reported journalism I can recall reading on any editorial page, called When Poor People Are Beaten for Seeking Help, the piece about poor New Yorkers seeking services from the Human Resources Administration and ending up getting jumped by HRA employees and guards, handcuffed and left to urinate on themselves, and coerced into oral sex seems to show the tip of a disturbing iceberg. Mara and Emma, welcome, and uh, hoping you can take us through how you came to this story and the process of reporting it out, and then what the public response to it has been from administration officials and others. Um, Harry, thanks so much for having us. This is Mara, um, and also for those very kind words. Very nice of you to say. Um, you know, I can't think of a story where the reporting has, has made me angrier than this piece. So as many people saw uh, last year, last December, there was a horrific viral video of Jasmine Headley, a young single mother, having her one-year-old son ripped from her arms at a HRA welfare center in Brooklyn, being arrested violently by HRA officers and NYPD officers, it should be said, as well. And that led us to wonder how many other cases of physical abuse there were against poor people seeking help at welfare centers in New York City. And that really touched off months and months of really old-fashioned gumshoe reporting involving freedom of information requests, digging into records to find lawsuits, but also to speak with uh, on and off the record current and former officers who have worked at these centers and also interviewing over a dozen victims, poor people, poor New Yorkers, who sought help and were actually beaten instead and in some cases sexually assaulted. The response from the city's HRA, which is the welfare agency, has been somewhat encouraging. They know that they have a problem and they have started to really take steps to do what they can. There's more they can do, especially on training. But what we haven't seen yet, which is very disappointing, is a real robust response from Mayor de Blasio, who is the only public official in the city who can really cut through the red tape to make sure that all of his agencies, which all report to him, are working to make sure that the people who work at these welfare offices, caseworkers and officers, are the right people, that they're trained properly. Um, The mayor is the one who has the power to negotiate those contracts with unions. And the mayor is the one who decides um, what some of these civil service rules can really be. So, I mean, this piece was so powerful. I mean, especially as you all concluded with he was beaten for being poor. And the whole piece really walks us through the criminalization of poverty in so many ways. Mara, you mentioned really briefly that there is a combination of NYPD and not corrections officers, but um, employees, guards. Yeah, guards, right? Contract. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit more about the guards and the process of hiring and firing some of these guards? Because you all mentioned it in the piece, what I think was pretty alarming was the incredibly low salary that many of these guards receive. So, what else did you all find out about that process? Sure. So I think it's just to pull back a 
New York City is the largest municipal government in the world, and as such, as many listeners will know, um, it has a really sprawling government bureaucracy. And so it's not just the NYPD that has officers, law enforcement officers, but it's also a number of other agencies, which include the Department of Homeless Services, which um, also probably needs to be looked at, and also the city's welfare agency, which is known as HRA, the Human Resources Administration. They hire um, officers who do not carry guns but do carry batons. They hire them from a civil service list that is overseen by a, a different agency, yet another agency, um, and, you know, there's very little that HRA as a single agency can do about who makes it onto that civil service list, but they do have some hiring requirements. They do look, um, you know, for criminal records, things of that nature. We actually think that the hiring process should absolutely undergo a top-to-bottom review, which we suggested in the piece, and I just think it's important to note that uh, given the low salary that a lot of these officers have, um, you know, some of them are, are absolutely there trying to do the right thing is what we found. And others are uh, just kind of showing in, clocking in, clocking out. And then there is a small number uh, that actually really are, are should not be there. And you can call them whatever you want. Um, but I think in, in general, given the low pay, I mean, these are folks who are in some cases one paycheck away from becoming clients themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that, but this agency needs a uh, a serious overhaul in its security operations. And I think when you don't train people properly, supervise them properly, or pay them a living wage in New York, um, this is it just breeds a culture of uh, that's dangerous to and, poor people. And what is their training process? Tell me what I want to talk about that. Um, yeah, well, I think what we found was most striking is that the officers we spoke with in the union are crying out for reform just as much as the clients, particularly in their training. And what was good to hear was when we spoke with the agency and we spoke with Stephen Banks, who runs the agency, they've added about 73 hours of new training for the officers this year since the Jasmine Headley case. Um, they've added new de-escalation training, about 20 hours of it, which is great. We'd like to see that ramped up even more because these, these officers who we spoke with said they are dealing with, with a client base who need particular attention. They need care to um, people with different mental health issues, and that's not necessarily training that they're getting, particularly in insufficient amounts. So we'd like to see more training to, to help these officers deal with um, with populations of people who have different mental health issues and who are coming from a vulnerable place. Um and then the officers we spoke with also just mentioned that they'd like to have equipment that allows them um, not to have to resort to use of force in any situation. Um, and, and what that specific equipment is can be worked out in conversation with the agency and the union. Um, some of them mentioned that they'd like to have pepper spray so that they don't mm-hmm. use force, um, but you use deadly force. Um, but so we'd like to see a review of the type of training that they get and the type of equipment that they're given. And we're encouraged by the fact that some degree of training has been added since the revelation of, of the Jasmine Headley case. So, sorry, just yeah. to clarify, uh, this is Alex, by the way, the, just to clarify. So uh, they are requesting pepper spray instead of firearms. 
Are they outfitted with firearms at this point? No. no, just batons. Just batons. But they're they're asking for pepper spray so that they don't have to use deadly force. I'm just confused by that. So that, would that be a ramping up? So um, it's Mara here. Uh, it's important. That this is not union officials who are who are asking for this equipment explicitly. These are officers who current and former who we spoke with in the course of our reporting, and they several of them said that. Um, Something like pepper spray might be useful because it is less deadly force than a baton, which is what they carry now. Batons, as as you know, can become deadly. Mm-hmm. And so this would not be a ramping up in that case. Well, I mean, I've, I've, in general, I've also seen pepper spray used to excess because a lot of the things we're saying about the security guards here have also been said about prison guards and COs as far as them also being like one paycheck away from uh, poverty and things like that. And the use of deadly uh, – not deadly force, but the use of pepper spray across the NYPD has been in very public examples like incredibly egregious. And HRA is a place where things are pretty much hidden. It confuses me like how the disconnect was between this being such an open secret or this being talked about so much amongst people outside of the media, how um, it just so recently got to the media. (laughs) Well, I mean, how much time do you have, right? Um, I think that when we interviewed over a dozen clients, victims, people living in poverty who came seeking help only to get beaten for it, it became clear to us you know, just how vulnerable this population of New Yorkers really is. And in most cases, what little resources they have um, and time they have to, with which to advocate for themselves and to be heard. And so I'd, I'd love to hear from Emma on this, but for me personally, it was truly um truly an honor to to listen to them and to be able to elevate their voices because you're absolutely right. They they don't generally have a voice and and, uh, nothing really has made me angrier. Yeah, I mean, one of the shocking things when we started out reporting this was that the question we kept hearing, even from people in the building, is what is the HRA? And it's you know, the largest social service agency run by an American city it serves millions of New Yorkers a year, and it's, their offices are everywhere. I mean, a, a lot of the incidents that we reported in the piece happened um, on West 14th Street, which is really, you know, the center of, of the city. It's a bustling neighborhood, and yet there, there aren't a lot of cameras in these centers. What, what's happening isn't well known even, I think, within the city bureaucracy. And so what we were really calling for is a top-to-bottom review of this agency that's known only really to like the most vulnerable residents of this city. And it really just needs more scrutiny coming from within the city government. It's, it's touching so many people's lives, and yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of knowledge of, of, of what's really happening in the one-on-one interactions of the people who are going in to seek help in these offices. And that was really disturbing to us. Where in the city government should this be coming from, right? We got Steve Banks, who in this story says that in 2014, right when he came in, he knew about a few cases that raised alarm bells. We have the controller's office, which is accountable for the the settlement of some of these cases. Uh, We have the mayor, like, 
where should this accountability be coming from? And are any of these people clear on the scope of the problem, right? We're talking about, you say in the story, it's about, I think, 60 uh, excessive force cases, 57 for 27 through 2019. About half of them weren't substantiated. So is anyone aware of the scope of the problem and who's responsible for it at this point? Yeah. So it's a great question. At the end of the day, uh, you know, Steve Banks, the commissioner of HRA, while he is responsible, he has taken measures in recent years to change the way officers and caseworkers interact with New Yorkers coming for help. And I think there's more he can do, and we lay some of those things out in in the piece. For example, the training, he can. I think he should add substantially more training. If you really compare HRA officers, uh, who I think get about six to eight weeks of training versus six months for police officers, that gives you a sense of the kind of training these folks receive. So, so that's something he can he can ramp up. But the larger story is about how the bureaucracy in the city can really get in the way. And it is up to the mayor, Mayor Bill de Blasio, to make sure that agencies are talking to one another. He's the only one who can really rip away this red tape to make sure that HRA is hiring the right people and that it is able to hold them accountable. And so that is really on him. And I've been very disappointed with the lack of response from City Hall from the mayor's office on this front. For example, HRA has to hire again from the list of civil service employees or potential employees. It can't actually hold accountable its employees once the city has settled lawsuits that indemnify city employees from any accountability. So these are things that fall in the lap of the mayor, and his, frankly, his silence on the issue is, is very frustrating. Yeah, we'd, we'd really like to see that urgency coming from the top because we looked at the legal documents that people are signing that when a settlement comes down, ultimately um, frees the city of responsibility. And we, we need to see the urgency coming from the mayor saying there's going to be a top-to-bottom review and a commitment to ensure that there aren't future cases like the really disturbing ones that we reviewed. So we'd like to see that level of accountability coming from the top. And also, you know, even though we look at the what we believe to be the worst of the cases, because there are no cameras in the facilities right now, we actually don't know the full scope of this. And it's also important to say that while there are about 700 complaints over the past several years related to, you know, potentially excessive force, there were thousands related to rudeness. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, that is obviously not as serious as, as being physically beaten, but that should be taken seriously as well, because it's all about, as you said, uh, Christina, just the culture in which uh, people, poor people are criminalized. For needing help. And and dehumanized. A lot of the process is incredibly dehumanizing, especially with the rudeness complaints that were outlined. If someone needs social services, that doesn't mean that they should be treated without dignity and respect. And and so you all sort of mentioned this in passing, but the comptroller's office pays out for this bad behavior that's, you know, reported and, and sort of prosecuted and processed. But, you know, where is Scott Stringer on this? I mean, does he... Has he been outspoken in a, a policy space to say, you know, especially since we know that he's thinking about some some future plans to sort of challenge the mayor to say, you know, like, 
there there should be a sense of urgency because taxpayers are are paying for the bad behavior of civil servants? Well, it's interesting because while Scott Stringer, while the Comptroller, is usually quite quick on the take, there's an opportunity to criticize the mayor, which is understandable given his role in the city. Um, We haven't heard much from him this Mm -hmm. week. We did reach out and ask for comment. um, And while the piece was really not focused so much on their role, I would like to hear from them as well. Right, because, I mean, I, I thought that that was a key element of the story, as Harry mentioned. Absolutely. You know, there's there's Banks, there's de Blasio, and then I think that, you know, Stringer, especially if someone is looking towards 2021, I, I, I think that, you know, his statements uh, would be valid. Now, are you all sort of optimistic in any ways? I mean, I, as our, our listeners will read in this brilliant piece, you all said that uh, thus far under Banks, um, 20% have either left or been, of the guards, have either left or been reassigned. That seems like a pretty large number. Yeah, it's, it's encouraging to hear um, how firmly Banks seems committed to the challenge of, of reforming the agency. And, and as we pointed out, there's so many layers of complexity and so many layers of accountability. But it's definitely encouraging to see his commitment on that and his commitment to have the body cameras rolled out by the end of, of 2019. And when we spoke with, with experts around the country about the issue of how poverty gets criminalized, what we heard over and over was that it's shocking that this is happening in New York City, which um, which should be at the forefront of treating the vulnerable and the poor with respect and with dignity. So we'd certainly like to see New York City leading more on this issue, and and we'd, we'd like to see even more of the reforms, like the type that Banks has already started rolling out. And We'd like to see a story where kind of New York City turns us around and leads on this issue because around the country, there's there's been um, a more and more of the criminalization of poverty and people being intimidated out of being able to seek the benefits that they need from these sorts of government agencies. So if New York City could, could put itself to the challenge of, of being at the forefront of saying we're going to turn this around and treat people with respect and dignity and safety when they, they come into these centers... Um, that that would really be the story that we'd like to see come out of this. Staying in New York for a minute, this piece is really focused on HRA under banks and banks under de Blasio. Do you have a sense of how common such abuses were under previous administrations? So one of the things that we did in the course of reporting this story was ensure that we got data that uh, dates back to 2013. So it is important to note that this was going on under former Mayor Bloomberg as well. Um, we don't have years of data before that, but there's no reason to suggest that it wasn't going on before that. Um, in many ways, Mayor Blasio has paid more attention and certainly given more resources to fighting poverty, and that's nothing to sniff at. But in my opinion, the reporting that, that we found shows that how you do what you do and how you manage an agency is just as important as the way you talk about poverty, um, the promises you make, and the money you put toward it. Why are there no cameras and why are there no cell phones in these places? The reasons for that have always eluded me. If the one person, and I forget, that person's name is escaping me, had not whipped out their cell phone to record Jasmine Headley and the attack on her, you know, this would have gone unnoticed. It would have been another, like, faceless complaint that maybe got paid out. I mean, she went to Rikers. And if that video hadn't gone viral, um, 
I'm not sure what have been done about it. And again, it's kept so secret. Uh, you know, conservatives could point to it and say, this is the future like liberals want. This is the socialist nightmare that everybody talks about. Not that that would be what it is, but the lack of accountability and the lack of transparency on a level where there's no cameras in these places that anyone could be treated however uh, the person having a bad day feels like they could treat them. Um, the I've noticed a trend toward a shifting of accountability. Uh, we talked to Corey Johnson last week, and we talked to Eric Gonzalez a few months ago. And both of them in the closed Rikers plan and Eric Gonzalez's 2020 justice plan, we've seen a trend toward taking the responsibility of social services out of HRA's hands, out of the Department of Social Services' hands, and putting them into subsidizing nonprofits. Um that, for future reference, in my mind, could come up with a whole host of new problems. But what is your opinion on that shift in funds and that shift for the working poor to find their services in nonprofits subsidized by the city? I mean, I would say that even though there has been that shift, it's it's still the case that the vast majority of benefits that people living in poverty receive in this country come from the government, um, and some of the most basic benefits, healthcare, so on and so forth, food assistance. So I don't want to brush that aside, but um, I do think that really this is something that government has a huge role in, and we don't want to let them off the hook. I mean, one thing that came up in the course of our reporting was that there are federal and state rules about how some of this aid can be dispersed that really uh, make some of the, these interactions between caseworkers and and New Yorkers very difficult. So requiring that someone comes in person, for example, or waiting periods, things like that that really um, we should be able to change on the federal and state levels can really improve the nature of these interactions or not, depending on, on whether there's action on that front. So I think there's, there's levels of accountability everywhere, and and I think that's that's really been our focus here, and government should be leading the way on this, frankly. And on the on the question of the cameras and the cell phones that you mentioned, I think that's also important because what came up in the course of our reporting is that on cameras, it's not a simple question because there is a lot of sensitivity in the agency about not wanting to overly surveil these offices where people are coming in in a really vulnerable position and discussing intimate. Um, circumstances. So I think there is that balance that the agency needs to strike of ensuring that complaints could be substantiated without making people feel like they're being surveyed in every, in every corner of these offices. Um, and on the question of cell phones, it is just really disappointing to see uh, and, and disturbing to see how many of these situations arise out of capricious rules being enforced, like people being kicked out because they're on their cell phones or when, in Jasmine Headley's case, she got into the altercation because she was sitting on the floor when there were no seats available. So there, there is kind of a over-policing of these rules that seem in, in a lot of instances like capricious, like the cell phones and the seats. Um, and, and, and that also seems like an area in which the agency needs to kind of take a new look at, at where rules are being enforced and then clients are being disproportionately punished for really minor infractions. So in the piece, it says... The stories share a pattern. A person waits for hours to see a caseworker, then is ordered by a peace officer to leave the building for a capricious reason. 
like asking to see a supervisor or using a cell phone. As the person leaves the building, he or she is jumped by a group of officers, often in an elevator, staircase, or doorway. Consistently, the piece goes on. The charges against the, uh, the person who's been jumped are usually dropped, um, and those are for things like trespassing or disorderly conduct. So my question is, given all of the arbitrary behaviors that you could arrest someone for or that apparently people are getting assaulted for, is there any pattern that you found, and, and the story goes over a number of individual cases, for what triggers one of these, since obviously it's not every person on a cell phone? And also, what the deal is with these groups of officers involved, if these tend to be the, uh, the same ones, like how this uh, plays out from, from their perspective, if you got any sense of that from your reporting. I, I guess on, on the first question, there, there definitely was a pattern of a number of people spoke to us about having to go through really, really long wait times. A lot of them are parents and had children who they had to get, get back to at home. And even in the course of just inquiring about their wait time, they were jumped or they had to endure physical abuse just for saying, you know, I've been waiting for three hours and I have kids at home. Like, when am I going to be seen? So that was really troubling for us to hear. And as one of the women we spoke with, Taina Clark, had to get home to, to children and was waiting in the office for almost three hours and, and was jumped just for, for asking about um, her wait time and, and when she would be seen. So that was, that was really disturbing pattern. I mean, we realize there's only about 120 HRA officers staffing these some 50 centers across the city. And then there are um, some more uh, private guards that have been hired. So it's actually a fairly small group of officers. And it really did remind me a little bit of some of the reporting that we've seen about the Customs and Border Patrol um, or ICE, where, again, you have some folks who are coming to work trying to do the right thing uh, but not getting support. And then you have other folks just clocking in and out. And then you have some people who really, you know, are, are behaving like sociopaths, frankly. And, um, you know, the stories that we heard suggested that some of these people, some of the worst behavior was being perpetrated by groups of guards and officers who had done this before. They had it down to a science. They would attack people. Um, in places where they knew that there were no video cameras. They were attacking people who were defenseless in a place where they were defenseless and in desperate need in many cases of, of government help. And then the charges that they used to arrest these, these people um, were truly uh, not just capricious, but in my opinion, it seemed as though they were they were coming up with some excuse to arrest them after they had beaten them up to uh, find an excuse for their behavior. And then after that happened, in many cases, people were held against their will um, under arrest, in many cases under duress, in back offices for hours, which is how Laura Zilioli, uh, one of the um, clients we spoke with, was sexually assaulted. So, you know, I really think that this is just a larger cultural problem with the agency, and there's just no sense that there's really any oversight that was working. I had one officer tell me that he had filed a complaint, um, or excuse me, had complained verbally about John Lugo, the officer who is serving five years in prison right now for sexually assaulting Laura Zilioli, um, and that nothing was done after that complaint was made. And so that gives you a sense of the impunity with which these officers were operating, because essentially 
Um, they were in a tiny corner of a massive kingdom that is New York City government that no one was paying enough attention to. Lugo, you mentioned, was a supervising officer, and he told all the other officers to leave before assaulting um, Zololi. Sexually assaulting. Sexually assaulting Zololi. Yeah. And so, Mara, though, you mentioned private guards. Are they... Who who hires them, and are they from a particular company? And is there a pattern uh, that is different between the private guards and the guards who are in HRA? So one thing that's important to note is that the guards are, they're from several different companies. Um, the HRA and the city have an uh, ability to direct training for those officers and guards as well. But really, it's the HRA officers and the HRA management in the city that sets the tone for these offices. Uh, which is not to absolve these contractors of responsibility. It's just to say that when we're talking about systemic change, I don't think looking at contractors is necessarily the right the right place to look um, at the start. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we really did focus on um, the chain of accountability and, at HRA, uh, which includes these officers, but um, it's not the same um, as, as when you're talking about City, city workers. And, and certainly, you know, if HRA officer behavior improved, then maybe there would be an argument to hire more city workers. Mm-hmm. But right now they seem to be um, equally troublesome. And was there a pattern between HRA managers across the different facilities? Did you all find that there were certain managers who seemed to have a lot more physical violence and altercations in their particular branches, if you will? Actually, no. I mean, the violence seemed to be spread out um, in several places across the city. I mean, I do think that there are certain facilities that have seen more of it than others that came off the West 14th Street location was one. Um, there was one in the Bronx on Monterey Avenue. But, you know, when I looked into that, um, different supervisors had been stationed at those facilities over time. So it's really hard to mm. uh, to nail that down, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mara and Emma, thank you so much for taking the time here. Uh, Listeners, this is When Poor People Are Beaten for Seeking Help. Please just go and read it if you haven't already. Is there any note of uh, optimism you can leave us with, with this really disturbing reporting you've done and story that we've read now? Is there any note of, of optimism in terms of what people, and probably the mayor in particular, since HRA answers to the mayor could do that could help uh, change this culture? Um, well, I mean, now that the mayor is, is back in New York full-time from the campaign trail, I think that there's uh, there's a, a lot of areas of, of city reform that, that can um, come onto his agenda. But in particular, what's encouraging with this story is that there are really particular steps that can be taken um, just to reform the agency and to create more clear channels of accountability. Officers spoke about the lack of clarity in terms of who they can report problematic officers to or instances of of excessive uses of force. So there are just really clear steps that we believe the agency can take to start rooting out this problem and to put a spotlight on it. So we are encouraged by the clarity of the path forward and and by um, Mr. Banks' commitment to ensuring that the problem does get rooted out. And I also just want to say one of the things that's been really satisfying for me is hearing from, you know, some of the people we interviewed, their attorneys, but also from family and friends and acquaintances, readers, who have said, 
thank you for writing this story because I went to these centers when I was growing up and my mother was treated horribly and it broke my heart or I couldn't get the help I needed and they made me feel like I didn't deserve it. I was criminalized for being poor and that has been um, a, a huge a huge honor to have people share those stories with us um, and really I uh, can't think of reporting that's made me angrier. So. Guys, I know that took a bit. Thank you so much again for, for reporting this out and for, for taking the time today. We really appreciate it. I'm glad that this is a story now instead of just, you know, something that's like an inch in the tabs maybe where, you know, Jasmine Headley and then everyone just, just moves on. Thanks, Ari. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you so much. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC, a production of Racket Media, is supported by a grant from Civil, a blockchain company reinventing the economics of journalism, and from listeners like you. We're headquartered and recorded this week at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. A special thank you goes out to Mara Gay and Emma Goldberg, both of The New York Times. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and we also want to thank Adam Kamara, who recorded and mixed today's episode. Remember, if you have to ask, tune into The Fact for some answers. Review us on iTunes and reach us on social media to discuss it all.